Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. Our guest this week is Jonathan Hannam, the co-founder of real estate technology investor, Taronga Ventures. Jonathan was introduced to Scale Investors by one of our most successful female founders, whose property technology company was funded by Taronga. She raved about working with Jonathan and his team because of their intelligence, ambition, and deep property expertise. But importantly, she also loved the firm's genuine commitment to positive impact, both socially and environmentally. My guess is that part of the success in building a specialist venture firm like Taronga that great entrepreneurs love to work with is Jonathan's very global outlook. He truly is a citizen of the world, having held senior roles in Sweden, Abu Dhabi, Singapore, New Zealand, Malaysia and Australia. He's fluent in Mandarin and Swedish and as an entrepreneur himself, he's very expert in the language of founders and business builders. Jonathan, fantastic to meet you. I love on your LinkedIn profile that you describe yourself as a global citizen. And I don't think I've looked through many people's profiles of all the number of different places that someone's lived and worked. Can you give us a bit of background around how that sort of global outlook developed for you? Firstly, thank you for having me. And, um, you know, it's, it's great to be a part of this initiative. Um, we're very keen to support scale and its endeavours. So I think uh, my, my career has been a journey and uh, I'd like to say it was well planned, but uh, things never really go that way. I'm an urban planner by background, so I did town and regional planning at Melbourne University. And uh, when I graduated, there were no jobs in Australia. So 1992 it was the middle of a big property crisis and uh, there was uh, quite a crunch. And uh, so I went to China and that's actually probably where my career began and worked in China for seven years and then with the same company moved to the Philippines and then to Singapore uh, before doing an MBA that allowed me to move into real estate investment management. So it sort of looks a little bit like it was planned. The reality is that uh, moves happened for different reasons. There was a fantastic opportunity to move to the Middle East with Abu Dhabi Investment Authority as they were expanding. I actually have a Swedish wife, so an opportunity arose to move to Sweden, and that was great for our family. And then I came back to Australia with Mervac. And so um, the journey with lots of jurisdictions and locations has been a part of it. But um, yeah, it certainly has had that, that travel aspect has had a pretty massive impact on my career. If I think about Taronga, so Taronga as a company was, again, a fortunate meeting where I met the other co-founder, Avi, who has uh, the M&A and VC experience. And uh, we immediately realized, and this was probably about 2014, we realized there was just such an opportunity in this space where the real estate sector was quite slow 
to change. And we were starting to see a lot of emerging tech that was targeting the sector. So uh, in 2015, Taronga was born. So it looks planned, but um, yeah, the reality is that moves happen when they they happen. One of the things that when you see English speakers move across the world, often they pick up little bits and pieces of the culture, but they don't really immerse themselves in the language. But you seem to have been one of the people that have immersed yourself completely and you're a fluent Mandarin speaker and Swedish speaker as well. How did you approach that in terms of acquiring those skills, you know, under pressure while you were living and working somewhere else? In China at the time, so 93 in China, there weren't that many foreigners. I guess it was a part of the process of trying to make the most of living in China. Language was just so rewarding in that your daily interactions with with people were just, that's where the value of being in a a new environment was was most felt. And so um, I actually speak Chinese like a Beijing taxi driver. I have a, a very local dialect. And it's it's very, uh, I guess, conversational, and and actually, it's it was a lot of fun actually to be able to speak that type of uh, that language. Um, Sweden was a bit different, so obviously, there's not many markets in the world that use Swedish as a language. So I was studying Swedish just to have more of a relationship with my family, and then when we moved there, had the opportunity to actually become part of, of of the society in which we were living, and and again, language was a very big part of that. But there were a lot of dinner parties where I didn't have much conversation and I, I had to start inserting English words where I didn't know the Swedish equivalent, but over time it, it grew. I mean, for the Middle East, I didn't pick up much Arabic. Unfortunately, with Abu Dhabi, I was traveling so much it was, uh, and it was a shorter period. There were some words, but uh, didn't didn't pick up the language. And so that sort of mental flexibility to be able to view the world slightly differently. When I, I sort of feel like when you speak a different language, you have a different window on certain situations and certainly the sort of cultural aspects. How much do you think that influences the way you think about making investments? Wow, it's a really good question. I think culture is everything. If you think of you know, having an additional level of understanding of a culture through language, it brings you know, such a richer experience to you. But I also think it brings, I guess, a level of understanding and almost a willingness to be more accepting. And that's what you have to have when you're, you're traveling across all of these you know, quite varied regions. You're less surprised by things that you see and more willing to accept that not everybody operates in the same manner. And I think if we think of putting that into the real estate or the, the venture space, we see such a variety of founders that have such a, a rich array of their own experiences. And that actually helps to build, I guess, a quite an interesting investment opportunity for us. We try not to have this sort of cookie cutter approach to actually seek and to, to look for that diversity. And maybe Mervac's actually quite a, a good example here. So I was head of capital at Mervac during a period when we uh, we're actually one of the first boards to have a 50-50 board, but it wasn't announced. That was actually business as usual because we were representing a society in which, you know, decision makers were 50-50 and, you know, people buying residential units. Um, it's If you're not representing the society, then you're missing out potentially on some of the opportunities that are represented by an opportunity. So when you're thinking about making investments, particularly in the venture part of your business, as you say, you're looking for sort of 
diverse ranges of ideas, but what are the sort of characteristics that you're looking for? One of the key sort of starting points for us is we look for businesses that are scalable. You know, a, a technology that only works in one market or is specifically designed for one asset class, that's interesting, but it's it's not going to scale as we need it to. I think the second part is we, we like to see that, I guess, diversity of experience of the founding team. Often, hopefully with some level of experience. So you often hear um, venture groups talk about the number of failures that the founder has had. We don't so much focus on the failures, but more the all-round experience of the ability of the team to be resilient. And I think then the last factor is that we're really looking for investments that are applicable to our investor base. So we have investors that have every asset class, logistics, office, residential, retail, hotels, and we have global investors. We're looking for companies that we can actually, that can be of relevant to a group like Patrizia in Germany or CBRE in the US, as well as to groups like Mitsubishi Corporation or Nomura in Asia. So it, it needs to be applicable to our investors. There's a range of different views when you talk about investing in technology in very specific areas like real estate. You know, there's one school of thought that, you know, it's really not a technology company if they haven't built the technology in-house and there's not at least one sort of co-founder that's very strong as a technologist. And then there's other investors who value people who have subject matter expertise, say in real estate, are comfortable that they're sort of acquiring the technology they need to build a proposition for a, a subject matter area that they know really, really well. Where do you sort of fall on that spectrum? So we often get presented a technology and the founders might be presenting one use case, for example. They might think that their technology is very relevant for the residential space. But because we already have that sort of fuller understanding of the real estate sector, we can often identify that the opportunity might be in a different sector. And so the real estate skill set is something that we have internally. What we're looking for is, I guess, the world's leading technology that can come into that space. We're more looking for scalable solutions that are able to demonstrate the value that they can bring. And, and our role is to make sure that we're supporting that founder to navigate to the key decision maker within the real estate group. That's actually probably the, the biggest thing that we bring. And it's this ability to connect the founders with the key decision makers. Um, because you get you know, a lot of businesses, it's quite hard to navigate a big corporate like Lendlease or you know, a Dexas. But if we can support the founders on actually getting to the exact decision maker for that specific uh, solution, we can actually fast track their growth. And how do founders find you? Because you you know, are in that real estate niche. Presumably there, there are some people who've worked in real estate for a long time that know you, but, you know, how do you try and make sure that the right sort of founders are coming to you and collaborating with you? So um, as you start investing in this space, obviously there's a lot of talk about capital that's being invested. For many founders, if they hear about another group getting a significant amount of equity from Taronga Ventures, they're quite quick to pick up the phone or to send us an email. We have a very open and simple application process. Groups can apply to us through our website. We run annually growth programs that the next one is actually focused on, for example, ESG impact. We have an open intake for companies to apply. Also, because we are 
addressing challenges that our investors and corporate partners are telling us, we will often go out and target a specific company. For example, recently we've been doing a lot of work in access control and looking at different ways that we can provide a seamless point of entry for, for assets. And we identified probably 15 to 20 companies in this space. One of those was one that we targeted out of the US and we became an investor in that business. And so it's, you know, a little bit of it is, you know, we, we have a quite a, a good profile. We do a lot of podcasts. We do a lot of uh, webinars. We speak at a lot of conferences. But I think the other side of this is that we are also targeting specific companies that can be of relevance for our investors. And do you have a certain company stage that you prefer to invest at or you're really just targeting the right sort of founders with the right sort of ideas? We are quite agnostic um, with regards to series. We've done everything from seed to sort of series D. What we're looking for is traction. And so if, if a company in the US or in Asia or Europe has had traction with a key real estate group, that's our initial starting point. And once we can see and test that it has a a measurable outcome for our real estate partners, then that's when we can actually invest. We we can quite often make a small investment to begin with. So our sort of model is designed on having up to sort of five, six, seven million dollars in any one company, but we might commence with maybe a couple of hundred thousand dollars and then scale as that business scales. And in some cases, we are supporting that scaling because we've introduced the company to our, our corporate partners and they become customers. You talked about the sort of magic that happened when you met your co-founder at Taronga. How important do you feel it is for companies, if they really have growth ambitions, to have more than one founder? The attractiveness of general life experience, you know, embodied in more than one person, is that important? I think it's so critical to have, not necessarily complementary, but in Arby, in, in my case, we have very complementary skill sets. I'll say this here where he's not listening, but we disagree on quite a few things, but we've worked out how to reach an agreement. I couldn't imagine having a business where I didn't have somebody that I could have a robust discussion with about a key decision. So for a single founder, that is an incredibly difficult challenge to operate. Certainly as you look to scale a business, investors want to know that the business is has the ability to survive. If there is any sort of incident that occurs, is there the ability to have somebody step in and and take over the operation and management? So we like two to three founders. We like to see a diversity in the founder base. We see that actually as making a much better quality, longer term investment opportunity for us. And in terms of what makes Taronga special as a place to work, what are the sort of things you're aiming to build into Taronga as a workplace so that you've got a great team? We've got a couple of, I guess, learnings from from both Harvey and my experience. So we've all worked in corporate roles and we've we've had different types of managers above us and around us. One of the key things that we say to people when we hire them is that we want them to start to think about this as being the last place that they work. And the method message is actually that we're going to do everything we can to support the growth of the individual on their own journey and to try to make an environment where the role is actually so compelling and so diverse that you would never want to leave. We match that with, I think, an above market package that includes good salary, incentives through that are aligned to the, the performance of the fund. 
the culture is actually built around probably a little bit from the time I had in Sweden where um, there's quite a, a nice humbleness in the Swedish work environment where there is a family first mentality and we see that as being quite critical. I had a, a boss in Sweden and you know he would quite openly walk through the office at 2.30 to say, I'm off to pick up the kids. At the time I was initially, I reacted to it, I couldn't believe it, it was the first time I'd seen this. But if we're really thinking about empowering people to feel motivated to work, that ability to actually also balance work and life becomes so critical, especially if we're wanting people to work with us for longer term periods. So um, yeah, I've used that quite a lot. I think that family first is a, a message you hear quite often in Taronga where you know someone is not feeling well or has to pick up a parcel or has you know medical issues, everything about the individual is, is respected. And I mean, you work at the intersection of property and technology, which both industries aren't terribly well known for, for sort of diversity. Is that resonating with the people that either want to come to work with you or to have you on their cap table, that sort of commitment to genuinely seeing, you know, your colleagues and investee companies as human beings? The diversity is, it is probably the biggest challenge that we face. And it's one that I hope that this, this podcast will actually help us to address. That intersection of real estate and technology that are two incredibly male-dominated sectors. And we're working at the interface of the two of them. You know, emerging technology companies require people to take risk. You know, we need to support founders that are actually willing to, to take those steps. So if we think of our business, so I'm going to give you some really key examples here. So we recently had an intake for our Singaporean growth program, and out of 180 companies, we only had 15 that were female-founded. As an industry, we need to do more to, to support that. With recent job applications, we're sort of seeing 60 to 70% of applicants are male. We're trying to be at the absolute forefront of the industry, and yet we're also seeing that the lack of diversity, and potentially there's a feeling that there is risk in this space, which makes people decide that they don't want to be operating in technology especially. So I think that's something that is our biggest challenge that, that we're, we're actively trying to solve. Delivering on their ambitions, but you know, also doing it in a way that demonstrates that you can break down some of those barriers. Yeah, so we're not allowed to have favourites. Many of the businesses actually have, you know, from a sort of diversity point of view, I think we're seeing some very high quality businesses and Again, it's a little bit like Mervac, where we're, it's irrelevant that it's female-founded. It's just a very, very good business. And you know, something like a ground floor, um, which is a, a locker business that is basically agnostic from a delivery point of view. It works with all of the delivery providers. It's got a great founding team, two female founders, male founder. They're growing dramatically because they actually have a fantastic solution. And actually, a really nice thing is we're seeing some of our businesses start to work together. So um, we've got another investment in a company in Melbourne called Space Cube. Ground Floor and Space Cube are actually working together to provide some of our partners, groups like ISPT and vicinity centres, with Click and Collect, which is a service that is at the edge of a shopping centre where you know someone can go and pick up a parcel, they can try it on, and if it's not fitting, they can actually leave it. So it makes the shopping centre actually operate 24 hours, which is pretty cool. So I think we are looking for more businesses with diverse founders. There's definitely funding that can support that space. But at the end of the day, 
what we're looking to create is just market-leading businesses. And those businesses, you know, many of them um, will benefit from having the diversity of a, of a skill base that represents society. What sort of proportion of your investments are invested in Australian-based companies and you know, how many are in other jurisdictions? We've now made more than 20 investments. So um, we have actually probably about uh, just over half are Australian companies, but many of those are also Australian companies that are now growing into markets like the UK or into the US, into Asia. We're also seeing that there's a lot of interest from international technology to come into the Australian market and actually use it as a, a test case for expansion into Asia. We very much sort of, we're trying to position Taronga Ventures as being that interface that can support Asian businesses with their international growth, but also as a strategic partner for the world's leading technologies that are looking to come into the Asian market. And a really good example would be something like a carbon cure, which is um, this fantastic business out of Canada that they actually inject carbon dioxide into cement and it becomes embedded in the mix. So it becomes calcium carbonate. Carbon Cura is now coming into Australia. We've got it into New Zealand. It's into Singapore. And it's one that will have a dramatic impact on actually taking a lot of the carbon out of construction. And uh, our construction sector is you know, one of the biggest polluters. So if we're serious about addressing any level of climate change, then we have to actually start uh, addressing the, the carbon within the real estate sector. And, and that's a business that, that is scaling very well into this market, into this region. And it seems like that's a space that you're personally really interested in, you know, so clean tech and carbon removal, emissions reduction. Why is that a particular area of interest for you? Um, it's a very good question. So um, I think as a family, so my brother's actually the um, environmental editor at The Guardian, um, used to be the carbon editor at the Sydney Morning Herald. I think as a family, you know, we grew up planting trees. My dad was a, was a forester. Did you grow up in Victoria? Yes, in Victoria. We've always had embedded into us this, uh, I guess, respect for the environment. You know, part of my university degree was environmental planning, which is, is actually about resource allocation. And even actually when we moved to Sweden, you see a, you know, a very different way that construction is performed in, in that market. It's still 10 years ahead of Australia from a, a quality of construction point of view because they're actually thinking much longer term. We can do so much more in the construction space to be more respectful of the environment and to actually build in a manner that is actually going to be much more longer term. So I think yeah, I'm just driven by trying to change as much as we can the environment in which we live. And is that an overlay in terms of your investment thesis? So if, if you sort of see a company that looks like it'll have good commercial returns, but then also has that sort of environmental impact as well, does that make it more attractive as an investment proposition? Yeah, so there's been this incredible shift now with most of the, I guess, leading investors globally, the, the pension funds and sovereign wealth, wealth funds, they are all demanding that uh, there be a much greater focus from the real estate world on ESG. And so for us, when we're looking at a company, that will actually make that company more attractive to a group like a Dexis or a vicinity, because we can then start to actually support them with their challenges. We've just seen Dexis has reduced its net zero date from 2030 down to 2022, which is an amazing shift. And 
they actually using technology to to help them drive that change. So um, absolutely, from an ESG perspective, if a business can demonstrate and it's um, measurable, that's something that will actually make for us for a much more interesting investment opportunity for our for our team. What sort of advice do you have for entrepreneurs who are thinking about raising capital, particularly if they're entrepreneurs who have some interest or subject matter expertise in the property space? So there is actually quite a lot of capital available at the moment. And I think for many of the companies that present to us, I would actually suggest that they they do their homework a little bit before they, they start the presentation. It's, it's like anything. So if, if you're looking to gain the interest of somebody to become an investor, if you can understand a little bit more about the challenges they're facing, you've got a much greater chance of actually having them become a partner. We have an emerging tech company that's looking to meet one of our investors, of, you know, again, a vicinity or a Dexas. We actually ask them to just stop and think about how their product will actually benefit the corporate and actually in, include that in the presentation. There's a couple of other things too. I think a lot of our entrepreneurs in, in this space, are, they're obviously very energetic people. They have a lot of energy but they also need to recognize that implementation is really difficult and therefore they need to be measured in how they present to a large real estate group. In real estate, the reason there is a reluctance to change is because the business environment is already very tight. And you know, there's, if you're doing a development, you've got construction, you've got weather, you've got so many issues that you have to deal with. And if a product or a solution that's been presented fails, then that can delay the delivery of the asset. So I think entrepreneurs need to understand how critical timing is and be more, I think, reflective of the environment that they're coming into. So um, under-promise and over-deliver always works. And do you find that there's a tension between, as you say, entrepreneurs who want to move fast and break things and big corporates that have all that sort of governance overlay and that almost timing mismatch, you know, the frustration that a smaller, fast growth company has when they see someone who's a large incumbent that's not moving at the same pace? Absolutely. There's a, a very clear tension. So if you think of it from the corporate's perspective, the corporate likes to have reliability of delivery. It likes to have long payment terms, you know, 60, 90 days, and you have the emerging tech company. So you, you hear I don't talk about them as startups. So they're always, these are businesses, these are emerging companies, and that's quite deliberate. So they are looking for quick decisions and to move on to the next customer, because if this customer is not working, you know, time to get to the next business. And I think that's the tension. So what we do is we try to school our businesses that they need to present themselves as actually operating businesses. They're not startups. They are reliable. They are trustworthy companies that a large corporate can quickly insert into their business and have no breakdown in the operations of the assets. And if we can do that and there's a cost benefit or additional revenue, then we can scale very quickly. Because in this space, most assets are actually pretty similar, right? An office building in Tokyo or in Singapore or in Australia, if you get something that works, it can scale rapidly. And that's why it's such an attractive space. I'm so fascinated because I think the language makes such a big difference about it shapes mindset. 
Do you think there's sometimes something a bit unhelpful with the romance we have around the idea of a startup? That startup looks a certain way with people wearing hoodies and working late at night coding and it's a little bit alien to people in the real economy? And not just the real economy, but take it into the real estate sector, which is actually because of the nature of the business, because there is a lot of government regulations, there's a lot of individuals who've been working in the space for many years and they know how to get things done in their own way. If you try to bring in a agile, hoodie-dressed entrepreneurial founder, um, it's actually a different language. Our role is to make sure that the two languages become quite merged and both parties can actually understand each other. But you're right, it's absolutely a, um, a different mindset. I'm interested for you personally, it feels like the physical environments that you've lived in have taught you a lot. Are there people along the way that have been sort of role models and mentors for you? Yeah, it's a great question. I think I've had a couple of very interesting, I guess, role models. So if I think at you know, Sue Lloyd Hurwitz at Mervac, who's the current CEO, I moved out to Australia as part of Sue's team and you know, seeing a very large operational business you know, trying to drive innovation from within. There were some incredible learnings from my time at Mervac. And one of them is that we need to bring people on the journey with us. And so uh, a part of Mervac was actually uh, trying to change the culture so that people would be willing to make a decision, even knowing that that decision might fail. In our you know, institutional world where you know, people often don't get a second chance if they make a mistake. That required quite a dramatic change in culture. And so we actually had to take key executives on to a, like a course to actually get them to start thinking differently about change you know, can be a good thing and it's okay to make a mistake and that if you make a mistake, you still will get funding and you will keep your job. Just learn from it and move on. And so that was... In an Australian context, that was just an incredible experience. You know, Sue at the head was driving this change. Like my boss in Sweden, she, she walked the walk and, and you know, people followed. I also had in Abu Dhabi, probably the toughest boss I've ever had was, I guess, an attention to detail and a requirement for absolute perfection in reporting. You know, for a couple of years, I found it very difficult, but I worked out that I had to change. I had to improve how I was working. And Mark Burton, his name is, he's actually now a member of our advisory board, has been an incredible supporter of our business. But that focus on excellence was something that we also have tried to bring into Taronga. Are there other resources that you've learnt lots from? So, you know, books or podcasts or other things that, you know, you would recommend to others? At Mervac and um, with Sue's support, we, many of the execs went on an advanced management program at INSEAD. One of the key learnings from INSEAD is that you always need to have a plan B in your back pocket. And there's a couple of reasons for that. You know, firstly, you should always be thinking about what's next and where you're going with your career. But it also is very critical that if you have confidence in where you're at and that you have a, a backup plan, that actually changes how you turn up. And so we, we keep this message coming through to, to many of our founders. You know, you should always think about you know, what's, where this is going and, and how this can be, what will happen if this doesn't work, that you're okay. Because if you're so desperate for the sale, so desperate for the corporate to sign up, 
um, it shows. And, um, you know, we need to actually make it, we actually have to understand that sometimes decision-making cycles take longer than the uh, emerging tech company would, would want. But with regards to books, we've actually just made a corporate gift for, we've, we've got an ESG impact program that we launched in Australia. And we've just given all of the corporate participants a copy of A Life on Our Planet, which is Sir David Attenborough's uh, witness statement. We're trying to drive change through the real estate sector. You know, we're trying to change so many facets of this incredibly challenging environment. If you read that book, the first half, you actually get quite depressed because it's quite a dramatic change in, in his lifetime of you know, devastation of forests, you know, pollution and carbon emissions. But then it ends with you know, a positive outcome on how we can actually get to the uh, a more desired outcome. We gave copies of this to all of our corporate partners and it was really well received. Many of them hadn't read it yet. And obviously, it's it's extremely topical at the moment. But prior to that, I, I couldn't resist. I read it. Um, there was a book by 25 Australian journalists regarding um, reporting on China called The Beijing Bureau. And it was just a brilliant read. And it, it's many of the, the journalists that I know from our, our time there, but maybe less topical for the innovation space. Oh, I just can't resist asking you, how accurate do you think the Australian view of China is? You know, having lived there, speaking the language, how well do you think we really understand China? So uh, most Australians don't realise what level of uh, our trade is with China. They're our biggest trading partner by far. If we think of the direct comparison of, you know, Australia's services to the globe and how we export, and I've compared that recently to even markets like Sweden, which tend to have a much more diverse economy. We, we actually have such a lack of diversity in our trading partners, and we're basically just digging out things from the ground and selling them to China. The rhetoric and the, the politics of the Australia-China relationship, we sort of ignore. We actually are looking at quite a few Chinese businesses, and we're talking to lots of Chinese corporates. And we sort of operate in an environment where we think that China is going to be an incredibly relevant partner going forward. And it's one that we have to actually work out how, as a, a nation, we're going to work with. So the Australian-China relationship, I still have many, many Chinese friends and many of my you know, colleagues are still living in China. You know, the challenge is now a political one. Overnight, very encouraged to see direct talks between the US and China again. The fact that we haven't had high-level dialogue between Australia and China for a couple of years now is actually quite critical. It's an issue that, that hopefully will resolve quickly. Your point about emerging companies that you have in your portfolio being globally scalable, you know, you think there's a focus on the US, but we're so close to China and they're such a key trading partner. I think we shouldn't forget that that's an enormous potential opportunity for many of our emerging companies. Yeah, and we're seeing it. So we've got um, a lot of our businesses are expanding into China. We've got one that's a construction technology called Open Space that's actually getting great traction in the Chinese market. Yeah, you know, it is a different market. And China as an ecosystem, you know, you have to accept use of China cloud. There's risks with IP. So you need to go in with a strong partner. So that's something that we talk to a lot of our founders about, you know, how are they actually going to navigate into that market especially. But if you're successful in that market, 
it will have a much higher valuation than many of the US outcomes. You work across different time zones and, as you say, you hopefully try and walk the walk, have that sort of balance of family and professional life. Are there any tips you've got for being productive or getting lots done? One that I do try to abide by religiously, I guess, is uh, trying to clear all of my email by Friday night. I like to go into the weekend with a, a clean inbox or at least with items flagged for follow-up. I guess it can be quite annoying for Avi, my partner. We do try to have a full weekend and, and that ability to actually disconnect. It's not always the case that it can occur, but you know, at the moment, you know, that Friday night clean out of the inbox is, is pretty critical. Last question, what are you really excited and optimistic about? I guess for most of my friends, I tend to be the most optimistic person in the room. And my wife would probably describe it as unrealistically optimistic. You know, I probably need to work a little bit on my realism at times. I just think for the business that we've created for Tronga Ventures, it's just such an exciting time at the moment. We have this incredible intersection of real estate and technology. We've managed to secure some great investors and everything that's happening in the technology space is just so interesting because it is actually the only way forward for many of the corporates to, to reach their, you know, their carbon emission targets, to meet their own internal targets for change. And that means that there's going to be some incredible scalability in this space. We feel like we've, we're in a very fortunate position at a time when the momentum is now coming into the, I guess, into the real estate sector. Oh, well, it's fabulous to spend time with an incurable optimist. You're doing some fabulous work. That sort of focus on seeing greater diversity in the sectors that you work in is just excellent. So thank you so much for spending the time with us. Our pleasure and uh, thank you for the time as well. We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level. As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive, like scale investors. We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs, Scale Founded, a five-day short course, combining one-hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders, access to an online education platform, and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series, an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au.